uh, and, and you can keep that one. If you do not have a Bible, it's a gift for you this morning. But if you do uh, have one and you're more than welcome to use that, just put it back when you're finished. Uh, but Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17, we've been in a series currently called Revival. And we are exploring why and how God brings spiritual awakening and renewal to his people. So uh, as you turn there and you get there, if you are able, if you could please stand with me this morning as we read uh, God's word. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Um, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it, man. Good morning, Providence. I am uh, glad to be with you this morning. I hope you guys are, are adjusting to the various weather patterns that we've experienced this week in, in Texas. I uh, told my wife last night I kicked the air conditioner on, and it got really cold really fast. And I was like, man, what are we supposed to do right now? I'm either sweating or I'm freezing. There's really no in-between. Um, if I don't know you, my name is Corey. I'm one of the elders here at Providence Community Church. And uh, I just want to first off welcome you, but secondly, I want to acknowledge what, uh, what I believe is the work of the Lord in our midst and in our presence right now. Um, meaning today, but also meaning what we have seen so far over the last couple of weeks as we have entered into uh, this sermon series that we are calling Revival, as we are um, quite literally asking the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit to breathe life into his church, breathe life into his people that will um, create fruit. We, we've talked a lot about revival being something that comes to, to believers, comes to the church, and because it is so powerful and because of the, the effect that it has on us, it has no choice but to affect our community, our city where we're planted, and our state on into our nation, and by God's grace to the ends of the earth. Like that is the key, as Eric told us, and as we've said a million times, like we are here, we say we're here very plainly to make the gospel unignorable in our community, and I believe more than anything that this is the avenue by which God will empower us for that mission, and that is by reviving our hearts, by letting the Holy Spirit, in sending the Holy Spirit to do his work within us and, and allowing us to go out and do that work. So um, I, I'm thankful for that. I hope you guys have, have experienced what, what I've experienced and had the conversations with one another that I've had with a lot of you over the last couple of weeks. And, and I'm really excited to see what happens as the Lord continues to move in our midst and he continues to work. Um, as we have defined the word revival, Joe, Joseph has done a masterful job the first two weeks with, with the first two sermons in this series, and he, I wanted to pull out the definition of revival that he gave us, I think, back in week one. He said this, he said, revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that results in extraordinary spiritual awakening among a particular people in a particular place. And when I say that we've been praying for the Lord to do the work of revival among us, that is exactly what we've been praying for. Not only for ourselves, but also for each and every one of you, and also for other churches in this area that desperately need it so that they can join and we can move forward together in gospel ministry. 
We've talked a lot about revival coming to the church, and my prayer for you is that you haven't deciphered that as us saying, I pray that only providence gets revived. No, that's, a, that's obscene. There are, there are churches from, from one end of the city to another that we pray God brings revival for them also. So that we, we will do the work of the Lord, do the work of the gospel, and we'll do it side by side with one another, not as enemies or foes, but as brothers and sisters in Christ with a common goal, and that's the glory of our God, right? So let that be true for all of us this morning. Um, as I said, Joe's done a really good job introducing the, the revival series over the past two weeks, and this morning I'm going to work as hard as I can to try to build upon the foundation that he's laid, looking at this text that Eric read for us in Psalm chapter 51. So before we do that, um, let me pray for us really quickly. Let me ask the Lord to, to be among us today and to do his work, and then we'll jump into the scriptures. I'm going to pray. Father, we desperately need you this morning. God, we are here and we are willing. We are in your scriptures, my God, and I would ask that you would just do the work of your Holy Spirit. God, open our eyes, open our hearts to the truths that we're going to read today. God, let us be a people with, with soft hearts, God, not hard hearts, but soft hearts that can be penetrated by your word, and God, where you can, you can do your work within us, God. God, I pray that, 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 that you would do that for us this morning, God. I pray that we would, we would just rely upon our dependence on you. God, that it wouldn't be our work, it wouldn't be our hands to the plow, Father, but we would, we would be completely dependent upon you to do your work through us because we know that your word has promised that you will. God, just give us willing hearts that we might serve. God, I pray that that would, that would, be, that would be the cry of our heart this morning. My God, be with us as we, uh, as we spend this time together. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross and for the, the sacrifice, God, that you've given us so that we might commune with you. Father, let us never take that for granted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at Psalm 51, Joe's done a really good job of, of explaining revival from a very macro level. Like the first week, he, he talked a lot about what revival was and how that applies to us. And last week, we talked about the church and the church that Jesus longs for versus the church that we see painted in Revelation 3 that, uh, that the scripture quite literally says, make Jesus nauseous. So we've looked at revival from a macro level, and now you're going to see the... Um, you're going to see the series begin to shift and start driving down to more of a, more of a micro look. How, what is it that revival looks like in the individual lives of believers? So today in Psalm 51, we're going to quite literally be looking for the heart of revival. And I believe that the heart of revival is clearly, clearly indicated and given to us in this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to dive right off into it for the sake of time. Um, and I'm going to read to you, we're starting in Psalm chapter 51, the first part of the, if your Bible's like mine, you're actually going to have to go above the first verse. The first part of the first verse says this, it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is one of the only ones where we actually have a pinpointed historical origin as to when this Psalm was written. We're indicated, we are told that the author is David. The psalm is written by King David, who, as we know, if you've got any uh, church background at all, you know that King David was not a small character in the biblical narrative. And he's actually a, a quite large character in the biblical narrative. He's, he, we were first introduced to him as a, a shepherd boy who comes onto the scene and slays the giant Goliath, right? Like everyone's pretty familiar with that. Like we, we typically get that in in Sunday school, and then we'll typically get it again a little later when Matt Chandler is screaming at us that we are not David, right? So David is, David is uh, very, uh, very important. He's a very big character in the, in the narrative of Scripture. After he slays Goliath, the Scripture progresses. Uh, we see David as a man who's chosen and anointed by God as king over all of Israel. So this is a guy that's doing pretty well in the narrative until we get to this point in the scripture where the psalm tells us that David wrote this when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So you guys are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. We begin to see David erode before our eyes. He goes from this overwhelming king, victorious um, you know, like I said a while ago, a guy that, that's pretty much got it all together in that moment. And then we read the story of David and Bathsheba, and we begin to see that narrative about David erode a little bit. 
We begin to see his humanity. We begin to see his sinfulness and, and all of these things. And that story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And rather than read through all of it, I'm just going to quickly go back and kind of help us, help us catch up just in case you're not familiar with the story. So basically what has happened is David has sent the armies out for battle in 2 Samuel. They're out there fighting the war. And David is back in, in Israel in the castle or whatever he lived in, the palace or whatever at the time. And he's enjoying his kingly life. So David is doing his kingly thing. He's going on about his business. And he goes up onto his roof and he happens to see Bathsheba who is bathing and he sends someone over to bring her to him. So David basically looks out and he sees Bathsheba, he sees her bathing. And in that moment, rather than avert his eyes and move away from that or that potential temptation, David goes, actually like what I see here and I would like to have it for myself. So David does pretty much what a lot of us did in junior high or maybe high school. And you say, hey, I like that girl over there. I'm not going to deal with it. You go tell her I like her. Like you work your way over there. My wife. This is a true story. She actually did this to me when, she was, when I was in the 10th grade. I was in the 10th grade. And I tell her all the time, like, it is the grace of God that I did not say, yeah, I like you too, at that moment. Because had we dated in high school, we wouldn't be married now. That's almost a, a definitive. So David does this. He sends out one of his cronies to head over and say, hey, you know, David wants to meet with you and as he is arranging that deal as he's arranging that meeting with Bathsheba he is informed the scripture tells us that Bathsheba is another man's wife she has a husband named Uriah so at this moment in time it's no longer David's pursuit of a woman that he wants to know or wants to be with or thinks is attractive at this point once he's informed that she has a husband and that she is married to someone else David progresses on willfully entering into sin like he has made the decision in this moment to enter into sin. David is undeterred by the knowledge that Bathsheba has a husband and he ends up sleeping with her and she becomes pregnant. This is a problem, right? Immediately, like you have a, an issue here and David is in the middle of it. And here's the thing about that issue. As I said before, David knew what he was doing was wrong. Like he knew it was wrong. He was not confused about the sinfulness of his action. But much like you and I, we will know that what we are walking into is wrong and we will do it anyway. Because why? Because we feel like it's the right thing to do. It's what I want to do right now. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to back off. I'm not going to stop this doing what I want to do. I am going to continue doing that. So David, he knows the law, he knows it, he knows adultery was forbidden by God, and yet he makes the conscious decision to move forward in his disobedience. And now he's faced with the consequence of that sin, which is the pregnant Bathsheba. Now, David could man up at this point. He could take responsibility for what he's done. He could go back and begin to try to, try to mend things, but he doesn't. He ups the ante. What does he do? He tries to cover sin with more sin. All right, you guys are familiar. He, uh, he sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, brings him home from the battlefield thinking, hey, man, if I bring this guy home from battle, he's probably going to sleep with his wife. And if he sleeps with his wife and she's pregnant, he'll think it's his baby. Life's good, right? We just move on from that point forward. And it, and it seems like a genius plan, maybe, and it might have worked, except for the fact that Uriah was, was an honorable man. He refused to go home. He refused to go home and be with his wife while the other soldiers were on the battlefield. And the scripture tells us that he quite literally slept on the doorstep of David's home. He would not go. He would not do that. He, he was too honorable for that. So how does David respond to that? David arranges basically to have Uriah sent back to battle, to have him forced to the front lines of battle so that he would assuredly be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah dies in battle, and once David knew that Uriah was dead, he quickly married Bathsheba. When she gave birth, no one was aware of his grievous actions. No one knew what the king had done, right? He had covered it up. Now, when you're reading the story of, of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11, there's a verse at the very end that I think often gets skipped over, but for my money, it's one of the most bone-chilling verses in all of Scripture. David, at this point, thinks, I have pulled the perfect cover-up. I now have her for my wife. No one is, is, is 
knowledgeable about the fact that she was pregnant before we got married. No one knows that I purposely killed Uriah. Life is good. But look, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says this. This is the end of it all. After Nathan has come and after Nathan has, has, um, has rebuked him, it says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No. Oh. <laughs> Like, I think I'm getting away with this, but the scripture is very clear. You might fool all of those around you. You might have the perfect plan to be able to cover the things that you think you're doing in the world, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the reason it displeased the Lord is because it did not escape the Lord. The Lord knew. Same way with us now. The Lord knows everything. Nothing is done that escapes the eye of the Lord, and that sin that David was committing was no exception in this moment. It was, it was no exception at all. So after all this has happened, God sends Nathan, who through a parable brings conviction to David's heart regarding the sin. And Psalm 51 is a record, a pinpointed historical record of David's response to that conviction that the Lord has placed upon him. That's why it's so interesting to read this, because we can literally track it back and say, I kind of can see or know where David was when he penned these words. I kind of can, can understand that. And I believe Psalm 51 to be the most beautiful description in all of Scripture of what true repentance and pursuit of revival looks like. And that brings us back to the beginning. You say, Corey, why? You know, we've had, we're talking about revival. Why are we now diving into such deep subject matter? Because revival is rooted foundationally in repentance. It is. There is no revival for you, for me, for us, for this community without understanding our plight before God and repenting of our sin first and foremost. And we'll talk about that for the next probably 30 minutes. That's what we're going to talk about. But it is a, a beautiful reminder of what repentance looks like, what we see here with David. So we're going to dive into this a little deeper. And I want to discuss three things in this, package, this passage that I believe help us understand what a repentant heart looks like and how that repentant heart leads us forward into revival. I'll start with point one, is a repentant heart turns to God when confronted with sin. A repentant heart turns to God when confronted with sin. I'm going to reread the first six verses of this passage of scripture. Starting in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So Nathan comes and he rebukes David for his sin. He makes him understand, and conviction falls on David. And David's response to Nathan is not to, um, not to get hostile, not to get aggressive, not to begin justifying his actions. And as king, he probably could have built a pretty good worldly argument for justification in that moment. David doesn't do those things. David's response is, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and abundant mercy. And it is very important why David is asking the Lord to have mercy on him. Not because you can smite me, not because you are God and you can crush me, not because you are God and you can kill me, but because you you are God and your love is abundant and you are full of mercy. So have that mercy on me. Like that is incredible. That kind of changes the game as we look at why do we repent. We, we don't repent because we have an innate fear of the judgment of God. We repent because we know God to be merciful and abundant in love and we see our need for it. So we know that God will forgive us. We know that God will meet us there, and David does this. David knows God's character. David knows what the Lord said about himself in Exodus 34, 6, when he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David appeals to God for mercy in this moment. And after appealing for mercy, he takes, responsibi he takes responsibility for his sin. And confesses that God would be wholly justified in rejecting his pleas for mercy. 
So here, here's the part where when I said a while ago that God is, is abundant in love and that we don't repent because we fear God's judgment, a lot of you probably cringed and said, wait a minute, there is a bit of repentance that is rooted in the fact that we fear God because the Bible tells us to fear God, right? We don't fear his judgment because we are covered in the blood of Christ and we understand justification, which we'll talk about a little later, but there is still an element of it that says God does have the power to do those things. He is justified in doing those things, and if he does, we couldn't argue with him. David makes the same argument right after he appeals to God first for mercy and abundant love. He then comes back and says, hey, man, um, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you only. And because of that, you can smite me and you would be justified in your judgment. I think it's interesting that David says, against you and you only have I sinned. This seems odd, considering that he had also sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba along the way. But what David's trying to point to here, what he's trying to give us, is he's trying to to confess that his rebellion was ultimately against God, even though it was not exclusively against God. All sin is rooted in this concept. Like, we, we look at our sin and we say, I'm doing this because of A, B, and C. Like, if I can just legislate out these logistical issues, then I'll no longer have to commit these sins because, Corey, you don't understand. I cannot escape these things. But the reality is we don't sin because we're put in a position where sin is before us. We sin because in our inmost being, we are rebellious against God. Like, we are rebelling against his way, and we are saying our way is better David goes on to say, so that you, God, I've sinned against you and you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, we know that God will forgive David. We we see it, and we see it as David moves forward. So what is this judgment that David speaks of? Look back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. It says, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That's heavy. There's a lot there, but what, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I am going to stop there for just a second to remind us that when we entertain sin, This is David did when David was intersected and told, hey, man, this is wrong. She's got a husband, and he chose to entertain sin anyway. I think the reality that we have to cling to and begin to apply to our lives is that there are earthly consequences of sin that exist, and those are real. I'm not saying that God comes out and says, because you did this, now I'm going to do this horrible thing to you. We see him operating this way in the Old Testament time and time again, but there is a, there's an element there where we are still protected, we are still cared for, we are still looked after. But I do know, and you know people that have suffered consistent earthly consequences of their sin. I know guys that have, that have made an individual mistake one night and were pulled over, they got a DWI, and it's on their record till the day that they die. Just kind of the way that it works. And those, those are, those are, these are, Altogether, good guys that now love the Lord, they know the Lord, but they made a mistake in their past, and the earthly consequence of sin is real. It follows them. I had dinner with a buddy of mine Monday. Um, I was down at Corpus for work, and he's a pastor down there. And he, uh, he, he's just been at the church for a few months, and, and he tells me, he's like, you know, man, I, he said, I got to tell you this. He said, I've just basically recently talked to my deacons about it. He said, but as I was going through some of the church computers and, and tablets when I got back, there was tons of pornography on those machines and it became very evident very quickly to the church there that the previous pastor had struggled with pornography and he had been indulging in that in the church office now is there grace for that guy there absolutely is will there also be earthly consequence of that sin absolutely there will be so don't let that escape us don't let us get so comfortable and we'll talk about this a little bit more and hopefully build some more context to it later on in the sermon But don't let us get so comfortable with our sin that we forget that even though the grace of God is for us and it covers all things, that earthly consequence still follows. And there are are things that that can come with that that will destroy us. Joe called it a couple of weeks ago a misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification. And he said this, do not presume, presume the grace of God or you risk losing it. 
And I think that's, that's, where we, that's where we have to reside. We cannot just presume that the grace of God is going to continue to cover these things, that we continue to entertain even though we know that those things are against the law of God and God is displeased with them. We can't, we can't do it. We can't continue to do that. I'm going to move on to point number two. It says, a repentant heart trusts God to purify and cleanse all iniquity. A repentant heart trusts God to purify and cleanse all iniquity. Look at me with verses 7 through 11. It says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So David, now that he has, has come before the Lord, he has pleaded with God to have mercy on him based upon the attributes of God that he knows, and he's confessed his sin. Now he's asking God to cleanse him. He is asking God now to purify him. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now hyssop was a, a branch that was used by priests in some aspects to sprinkle blood on a house that had disease in it. And if they used the hyssop branch and sprinkled the blood, that house would be deemed clean. Like the disease has now been gone because of that marking. And in verse 8, David asked God to rejoice, return his joy and gladness. And he says another interesting thing. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see, David's confessing in that moment that the weight of his sin is so heavy that it feels as though it has crushed his bones. This is a guy that is grieving over his disobedience. He is grieving over, over what he has done, and he is begging the Lord to cleanse him, cleanse him of the disease of sin that has, has overtaken him. The weight of his sin is so heavy that, that he feels like it's broken his bones. It's a very intense thing. And then David asks in verse 10, he tells the Lord, ask the Lord to create in him a clean heart. We sing, we sing this psalm here quite often, so I, can, I read this, and I want to read it with, like, the melody of the song. But I'm not going to sing for you because y'all don't want that today. Verse 10, David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, I'm going to pop back up to verse 5. Some of you thought I skipped verse 5, and you were upset about it. You were like, why would you skip verse 5? I didn't skip it. I'm just doing it in another place. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is, is in verse 5, admitting his sinful condition before the Lord. Not his individual sins anymore. It was his individual sin that brought him to this place of repentance. But now he says, my real issue is that I have been sinful since conception. A lot of people will read that and say, what do you mean? Did David's mother... You know, conceive him out of wedlock? Why is there sin? That's not what this is saying. This is David's admission that from the very beginning, when the cells in his mother's body began to form him, David says, that's when I became sinful. He, he confesses the condition of his heart to God, and then he asks God to do the work of cleaning that heart and purifying that heart. And hey, we can resonate with that because that's a condition that we all share. And when we go before the Lord and when we go before him in repentance, even though we often repent of individual sins as David was doing that bring conviction, we also must continue to plead with God to address the root of the issue, which is the sinful heart that is in all of us and has been in all of us since the moment we were born. We have to continue to do that. In verse 10, when David is asking God to create in him a clean heart and renew a right spirit within him, in essence, he's asking God to do the work of sanctification in his life. We use this word a lot. We say, man, the Holy Spirit is doing the work of sanctification in believers. And, and literally what that means is that the Holy Spirit is working and it is the work, sanctification is the work by which we are made holy. Literally means to be set apart for a particular purpose, to be set apart in our context for the glory of God in whatever context he plants us in. That's the work of sanctification. That is how you grow as a believer. It is the way that the fruit of our salvation, the fruit of our salvation in our lives begins to bloom, and it does that through sanctification. And this is what David is asking for. God, create in me a clean heart because the one I have now is broken. David has a 
right understanding of his sin. He has a right understanding of his condition. And what it does is it drives him to plead with God for purity, which is something that, that as a believer, we cannot, we cannot get to the point where we have stopped pleading with God for purity. You are never saved enough to not need to be on your knees pleading with God to purify your heart. You're, we as a church are never saved enough corporately. We are never doctrinally sound enough. We are never large enough that we need to ever stop praying and pleading with the Lord to do that work here, not just in me, but in us. And do it together. This is why we put such a high emphasis on community. You want to really get a diagnosis of your heart? Spend time with other people. Do it. You want, and, and get good friends that, that, that love the Lord and they want to walk with you and that are willing to sit with you and say, hey man, I have diagnosed this flaw in you and it is going to kill you if you don't deal with it. Like we must be doing that corporately. We have to. It has to be something that is a part of our constant everyday rhythms moving on to point number three and my final point before i start transitioning to close here it says a repentant heart becomes a revived heart look at psalm 51 we're going to finish up with verses um, 12 through 15 it says restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So David, he has repented, he has sought forgiveness, and now he's asking the Lord for restoration. And in verse 12, we literally see David pray for revival. I'm going to read it again. Verse 12 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The, the word, the Hebrew word here for restore literally means to be made new. So David goes before the Lord and doesn't say, hey, repair what is broken. Kind of take the joy you've already given me and bolster it with some new cool experiences that maybe make me more joyful. Now David says, make my joy new. Make it, make my joy new. And he says, when that happens, I will then. He begins to make promises to God. These are the things that I will do for you and in your name, but I can do none of them if you don't restore my joy. Is that not revival? Is that not what we are praying for as a body? We're not praying for anything that's out of line here. What we're, what we're coming together and praying for is that our joy would be restored as we look at this David David has asked he has asked for what I believe to be the essence of a revived heart which is a heart that is full of joy at its core at its basis and this is what he says he says if that joy is returned when you when you return that joy this will be the fruit of it look at 13 then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The root of our ability as a church to make the gospel unignorable in this community is asking the Lord to restore to us the joy of his salvation. If we are truly joyful about that which the Lord has done for us and that which the Lord has done for our spouses and those we love and our children and our friends and that we've seen the work of the Lord all over the world, if we're seeing it and it is making us joyful, you cannot contain that joy. I would diagnose, and I'm not going to put this on you, I'll put this on me. In my most spiritually dead seasons of my life, you know what I lost? The joy of my salvation. I forgot how lost I was before God led me to repentance. I, I, I lost sight of it. And I thought somehow I had begun to do enough on my own to have that salvation and to earn it. And God owed it to me. But the joy of our salvation is rooted in the fact that he owes us nothing. But he gives us abundant love and mercy. That's, that's at the root. Don't forget that. Don't miss out on that. 
Don't, don't leave that laying on the cutting room floor as we continue to pursue these more tangible things of God. Remember how lost you were as David is in this moment, walking in and remembering the weight and the depth of his sin and comparing it to the holiness of God and coming away from that going, you would be justified in judgment, but you won't do it because I know your character. You love me, and God loves us. And David says that the fruit of that joy is that he will then go out and he will teach transgressors and sinners will return to you. Like Brendan prayed this morning and it resonated with something that I thought about um, this morning as I was going over my sermon notes. Brendan prayed back here over the staff and he just boldly prayed to God that we would see people saved. That we wouldn't see excited people, that we wouldn't see people who grow. We want to see those things. But Brendan just goes before the Lord and says, I know you want to save people. Can we see it? And it's interesting to me because I, I, I thought about this this morning. I was sitting in my chair and I was going over my notes early before any of the family got up and it dawned on me just out of the blue. I said, man, sometime in this month, I don't know the date, but at some point in this month, we'll have been at Providence for four years. And it seems like four minutes. And then I'm thinking, man, we've been here for four years. And all of a sudden, that thought that like elicited some good feelings in me became this heavy weight of conviction that I believe is from the Lord. Because the next thing in my mind was, man, we haven't seen many people baptized in four years. I was like, man. So I began sitting at my desk, and I just began praying that the Lord would move on the lives of people that do not know him. And that he would begin saving people right here in our midst. People in this room that don't know the Lord, people down the street that don't know the Lord, people you work with that don't know the Lord, we want the Lord to save them and we believe that he will. And David says, man, return me my joy so I can go out, I can teach your ways and sinners will return to you. <laughs> They'll return to you. And I pray that for us here and I was so thankful for Brendan for boldly praying that this morning. That's who we need to be. That's who I hope that we are and I hope that that in and of itself is the fruit of revival here is that we don't grow our church really big and like have nicer things and do whatever it is that you do when you grow your church but that people would come to know Christ people that are dead in their sins right now that are destined to be separated from God for eternity would know him as father that's my hope and I pray that that's that's our hope also David also says in verses 14 and 15 he says deliver me from Blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my tongue will declare your praise. Return to me the joy of your salvation, and I will praise your name. I will praise your name. This sounds like revival. In the definition we said earlier, we said that revival was an extraordinary spiritual awakening. This is David saying, I am ready to come to life. Return to me the joy of your salvation. David's prayers for revival are born out of a broken heart that is desperate for renewal. And all this sin, all this grievous um, disobedience of who the Lord is that we read about in 2 Samuel, the Lord has taken those ashes and he's made beauty out of them and he's moved David to this point where David is now desperate for revival for the Lord and he's praying to be renewed. And my question for us this morning that I want us to kind of consider, and if you're like me, you've been considering it for a couple of weeks now, um, but I just want to ask two questions. First and foremost, are we desperate for renewal personally? Do we spend our days desperately praying for God to return that joy to us? Are we desperate for renewal? And secondly, as a corporate body, as a church, are we truly desperate for revival or are we just looking for some really cool church growth and maybe some experiential stuff? My hope is that the answer to that is that we are desperate for both because I believe one leads to another. If individually we are desperate for renewal, I don't think we will have any choice other than to see revival here because renewal will bring that. I'm going to begin closing with the last two, two verses here, verses 16 and 17. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So I want to make sure that we don't leave here doing something that's part of my character. 
I will typically leave here and say, God, I am desperate for renewal. I am desperate for revival. I do want to have a culture of repentance in my life. So let me make a list of things that I need to go do immediately in order to achieve those things. I'm going to start a new heavy Bible reading plan. I'm going to, uh, you know, begin praying at 4 o'clock every morning, even though I know I'm never going to get up at 4. I get up at 4.30, never going to get up at 4. Not going to happen. That last 30 minutes is critical. And if you're like me, those things begin to happen. You say, I'm going to do more good works, right? I'm going to share the gospel more at work. I'm going to do all of these things that, that might somehow create that renewal. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Corey, you guys just kicked out a, a prayer and fasting guide to us. Is that not a, a checklist of things that we should do? And, and I'll say this to you. We believe that's a necessary document because we believe that the Scripture commands us to be doing those things, to be praying and fasting. I choose to fast on Sundays during this time, and I never really considered what it would be like to fast and have to preach two services. Like, it never happened. So if, you, if I pass out during the second service, you'll kind of know, you'll know what it is that, that is going on here. Um, but yes, we, we pass that out, but I, I want to be clear about that prayer and fasting, God. What, what tends to happen to us when we try to seek renewal through a task list, like we're wired in our mind to think that we can somehow convince God to do the work. Right? We didn't, we're not asking you to pray and fast because we believe that you guys can put God in an arm bar and force his will. But what we do believe is that when we fast and when we pray and when we ask God to do his work, that because we see it commanded in scripture, that God does that. He sees it, he recognizes it, and he cares enough to answer the prayers of his children. Right? So when we talk prayer and fasting, I'm not talking tangible things that you can do to somehow bend the will of God, but rather we're entering into obedience before God, and that is something that God will honor. Like, that's true. I think some of us have experienced that. <coughs> Sorry. David sheds a little bit of light on the sacrifices that God truly desires. He says, God desires a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God desires a laying down of pride and an understanding of our helpless state before God. That's truly what he wants from us. He wants us to, and in, and in a way, admitting that we do have a broken heart and a, a broken presence before God, that is, in essence, a laying down of pride. Right? Because more often than not, we are, we are actually wired to say, let me do what I'm going to do. Let me implement the plans that I'm going to implement, and we'll just squeeze God in wherever he fits into my design. But what God says is, hey, I don't want that. I want a broken spirit, pride, and I want a broken and contrite heart, and I will not despise that. God says, I will not despise that. In Psalm 51, we see David's respond David responds to his sin with repentance, and that repentance leads David to revival. And that's because, as I said earlier, revival begins with repentance. That's the first move. The, the first thing that we should do after we begin praying and we begin asking, we should not walk away from conviction of sin, but rather we should go before the Lord because he is merciful and he is loving, and we should repent of that sin and seek forgiveness and joy. Look at the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. He says this. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Like, these are the words of Christ. I didn't come to be around those who have done enough checklist items to be considered holy. I came down to find sinners and call them to repentance. And in this word, repentance, we often think it means forgiveness of sin or turning from sin, but it literally means having a change of mind. Like Christ is saying, I have not come so that you might turn from sin. I have come so that you might think differently about sin. You might draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not, I might be struggling with that, but I know, absolutely know that it is wrong. That is repentance of sin. That, that is where that becomes, comes into play. David knew immediately he Repented, even though this word is not even used in this passage. This is clearly repentance from David, and it is an admission that says, I have had a change of mind, and I no longer think that those are things that I can do. I no longer think those are things that I should pursue. And more often than not, we find ourselves not having a change of mind about sin, but shoveling dirt on top of sin in order to hide it so that we might continue to hold on to that thing that we all know is destroying us. But we're just like, you know, let me just see if I can cover this up. Maybe my wife won't find out. All right, maybe the elders at the church won't find out. Maybe the other elders at the church won't find out. Right? 
And you're saying, man, I'm, I'm going to hold on to this. But what Jesus says, I came for you, sinner, to have a change of mind about your sin. That you might pursue holiness more than you pursue covering it up. You see, revival comes for us when we have a change of mind and we declare that God's ways are better than our ways. Like that is at the root of revival. And here's the thing, we cannot manufacture that. So this is where I'm going to tell you again, there's nothing you can do to make that happen. You cannot manufacture it other than pleading with the Holy Spirit and asking him to do that work, which is what we are doing. And that's what revival is about. That's our focus. In Acts chapter 2, which is the flagship passage of Scripture for this series, you've heard it mentioned often, and probably many more to come as we continue to drive through the sermon content of this year. But in Acts chapter 2, there's an account there of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and inhabiting the life of the apostles so powerfully that other people in the area accused them of being drunk. Like that was the thing, like those dudes are drinking early, like they've drank entirely too much. And, uh, it, you know, and, and, and that's what happens. And then Peter steps up and he delivers a sermon there in which he uses the scriptures to testify to Jesus being the one who was sent by God, also being the one whom the good Jews who thought they were doing the right thing were awaiting. And then he hits them with, with what I believe is, is one of the more powerful scriptures in all, of, in all of the Bible. Look at the screen. It's Acts 2.36. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I'm always like, man, what is this dude right here, man? He, uh, he was something else. But yeah, this Jesus whom you had crucified. So they, they look at the power of the Holy Spirit that's fallen on the apostles to see those guys are drunk. And then Peter delivers this sermon. I'm going to flip over here real quick. I, I, wanna, I wasn't going to read this scripture, but I feel like I want to. So sorry if you'll bear with me for just a second. My old uh, Southern Baptist Bible drill roots just came out right there. There we go. Acts chapter 2. Pretty easy one to find. Look at verses 37 and 38. I just want to read this to you. It says, now when they heard this, what Peter just told them, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, listen, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the way that Acts 2 has been referenced over and over again, we will say things like, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and, and 3,000 people were saved in a day. And that's true. 3,000 people were saved in a day, and the scripture goes on to say toward the end of chapter 2, the people were being added to them day by day, and they were all being saved. But why were they being saved? Because the Holy Spirit fell on them and led them to repentance scripture tells us that the beginning of the revival that we will draw out and say this is the one it began because they were commanded to repent and driven to repent by the power of the holy spirit if we want to see revival we will be a people and a culture and a church that engages in a regular rhythm of repentance it will just be what we do Day in and day out. It is like waking up and breathing in the grace of God for the sins of yesterday and exhaling out his praise so that we might be sustained for the sins of that day. But it is a constant state of repentance. And it's wonderful. Because the more you repent, the more you're forgiven, the more you experience the mercy and abundant love of God, the more that joy that we're asking God to return grows. And this is by design. Do not legislate out repentance from your day-to-day -day life. And I'll say it again as I close. We are fooling ourselves if we think we can expect revival without first repenting of sin. Fooling ourselves. That's never going to happen. If conviction and repentance is going to be part of our daily rhythms, it is then that we will experience revival. And I'll say this just because I want to give you something to chew on. If conviction and repentance is not part of your daily rhythms, I would ask you to check and seek the Lord and see that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. I used to, tell, I used to do student ministry, and a lot of us have done it. And student ministry gets a bad rap, but the Lord is doing good work in student ministry all over the place. And we used to go to these conferences, man, with thousands and thousands of kids at these things. And, and there would be this, 
These guys preached the gospel, but it was this big manufactured concert. I'll never forget a guy, and I won't tell you his name because he's local and he's in a huge church. He came out speaking at one of those things one time in a soccer jersey, and he had a soccer ball. And they, we sang worship. The music played. This dude came out to, like, WWE music, and he kicked the soccer ball into thousands of kids. And I thought, this is insane. There was smoke and mirrors, and it's all cool. But here's what would happen. You would take a group of 100 or whatever kids to these things, and out of that 100, 85 would get saved. And then in a year, maybe shorter, you'd take another group, same, 80, same 100 kids, the same 85 kids would get saved again. And I used to sit down with them, because I, and I knew they were kids. I used to do the same thing. Let's be honest. I'm good for it. But I wanted to disciple them through it, and I, I would say to them all the time, I would say, what you are feeling is called Conviction. And here's the thing about conviction. We shouldn't despise it because conviction from the Holy Spirit is evidence that he is within you. It's evidence of your salvation. If you don't have conviction, that should scare you. If you're under conviction for your sin, praise God for it and repent of your sin and have your joy restored. That's wonderful news, man. Oh, man, that's good. I got to get off this stage. I'm running out of time. So here's the deal this morning. Um, I'm gonna, I really am going to close, and I've said that four times. <laughs> whether you're a Christian who's wandered away from God and wandered into sin this morning, or whether you are a non-Christian that did not even understand your rebellion until you walked in the room this morning, and I, I pray by God's grace that the Holy Spirit has done that work for you. Whether you are either of those things, I pray that this morning that you would understand that because of the blood of Christ, God stands ready to forgive you today. God stands ready to not only forgive you, but to restore your joy and to revive your heart. I, I, I hate, I will not end a sermon like this, regardless of time, without sharing the gospel with you. We make the gospel unignorable, not because it's a cool thing, but because the gospel is quite literally the good news that tells us that because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection, and substitutional atonement of Christ on our behalf, we are reconciled to God. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. That is such good news. And I can sit here and preach to you about repentance all day long and tell you, you know, we need revival and all these things. But if we're not seeking revival at the foot of the cross, then we are wasting our time. May the gospel be unignorable here before it's unignorable there. God, make the gospel unignorable in this room that people that do not know you today, God, might repent of sin. People that do know you, that have been holding on to their sin, God, might repent of that sin, God, that you might restore our joy. God, let that be true. Father, we, we believe that you want to do that work. We believe that you intend to do that work here, my God, and I pray that as it's already begun, as we've already seen it, we've had the conversations, we've seen the evidence of it. God, I pray that it would continue. And I pray that today it would continue through the conviction of sin and your people, your children, admitting their helplessness and their need for you. God, I pray that that's true for us. God, we are in desperate need of your grace. We are in desperate need, Father, of your, the work of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would do that for us. Father, as we, as we close, would you let us, would you let us just sing, God, with voices and sing from hearts that are full of joy? God, can, would you allow us to sing, God, from hearts that cannot contain our love for such a merciful Father as you? God, do your work this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.